everyone, welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. As always, I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington. I'm a senior staff research engineer at Mozilla. Very glad to be here. And with me are two of my uh, fantastic panelists. Uh, Tyler, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Nell? Doing well. Our listeners can't see it, but I love how you've been rocking the Minecraft uh, backgrounds in Zoom for so long. Well, that's going to, spoiler alert, it's one of my picks this week because of the new updates. Uh, we'll Ooh. talk more about that later. Awesome. I look forward to that. And sure. uh, we also have Jeff Groman. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Uh, doing well. It's sunny in Seattle. I am quite happy. And yeah, we've been getting the uh, sort of the blue skies and then the downpour and the blue skies oh. and the downpour. So um, I'm some, sort of in the middle, I guess. Yep. yep. And then we have a special guest uh, today, uh, Sachin Agarwal. Sachin, how are you? I'm doing well. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks, Neil, for having me here. And, uh, and Tyler and uh, Jeff, we look forward to talking to you guys today. This episode is sponsored by Gravitational. As your team and cloud infrastructure grows, you may want to reevaluate how you access SSH servers and Kubernetes clusters. Gravitational Teleport is an emerging open source replacement for OpenSSH, which was built for modern cloud workflows. Teleport is opinionated. It does not allow SSH keys, and instead it insists on certificate-based authentication, making it dead easy to set up and use. Teleport is fully compatible with your SSH and Kubernetes tooling, comes with a beautiful web UI and an audit log, and it allows users to access servers outside of data centers like IoT devices. It was called Teleport because it creates the illusion that all your company's servers are in the same room with you, even if some of them are self-driving vehicles. Download Teleport on gravitational.com slash teleport or find it on github.com slash gravitational slash teleport. Sounds good. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do with DevOps. So a little background on me. Uh, uh, firstly, uh, you know, uh, I'm based in San Francisco Bay Area, so, you know, uh, can't complain about the weather. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it's been very uh, nice. I, I don't, I don't envy people who live in Seattle. You know, I'm, I'm very happy where I am. <laughs> um, yeah, I, this is actually my fifth startup. So I've been an entrepreneur throughout my career. Uh, my first job was with KPMG, and uh, I left them and started um, a management consulting company out of Singapore. And since then, I set up two healthcare startups, tech startups, both in machine learning, and then my last startup was in container security that we sold to Collis. So very familiar with DevOps, DevSecOps space, um, 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 started the journey with Acurix, uh, um, you know, late, late 2018, uh, set up the company in 2019. And uh, the problem that I see is, uh, you know, in the cloud infrastructure security, especially uh, in spite of people putting a lot of solutions in the, in the cloud uh, um, workloads, the, we still see high profile compromises. And I keep wondering why, why those things happen. We did a little research, uh, try to understand uh, what, what was the real reason for um, such breaches, spoke to something like 80 to 90 CISOs, uh, you know, late 2018, uh, trying to understand what are they really doing about the issues that they see in the runtime environments. And uh, it's, it appeared to me that they see those issues, but they really don't, don't, don't remediate those. They, they, they just probably live with those. And I think we can get into more details as we progress into the discussion. Uh, from our findings and and how we're solving it differently, but uh, yes, uh, I still think that while DevOps is is a very nice uh, way to to improve agility and 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 bring your business applications to reality, you know, at a, at a speed of business, uh, you know, people need to think about building security early on into the processes for sure. Excellent. Well, uh, tell us how uh, Acurix works. 
So, uh, you know, as we see uh, the cloud uh, adoption, and, you know, when I talk about cloud adoption, not just the, the provisioning of cloud resources, but across the stack, right? We are increasingly seeing people introducing different layers into the cloud infrastructure like uh, Kubernetes, your, your container, serverless. So all these, all these layers sort of get provisioned by different teams. Um, they get provisioned by at different times and they change at different velocities, right? So, so it's not never a constant posture that you have in a cloud. So uh, when we look at some of these and on top of it, when we think about how the infrastructure today is deployed, people uh, are not really making changes in the cloud, right? Once, once, the, once they make, want to make a change in the cloud, they bring it down, they do not modify it, and then they replace it with a new cloud. Like we call this as immutable infrastructure. And we have, you know, there's been enough, enough talks about on your shows and different shows on this topic. The, um, what, what really uh, happens in this environment is, which is evolving, which is always changing, that how do you introduce security or how do you secure an environment that is immutable? So at Acutex, we brought in the concept of immutable security. And again, to us, it's not really a buzzword to say, hey, this is immutable security. But what we really mean uh, by that is, A, the cloud security should be done full stack, which means you should not just do your network storage and compute. You should uh, do your uh, platform layers, your orchestration layers, your uh, container layers, serverless layers. So basically, a full stack uh, on that. And then secondly, uh, you should do your security from code to cloud, which means um, uh, when you're introducing infrastructure as code or you're programmatically building your cloud on the left, um, start securing your code or infrastructure code right at the time of development, and then apply the similar principles into the cloud um, and do what we call as code to cloud security. And the third one is, which is the most important one, is that once you are using the code to define the cloud, make sure they don't drift. Make sure that people with privileges do not make changes in the cloud. They do not break the trust that you established with the with the source of truth, which was your which was your infrastructure as code, and you maintain the posture, right? Uh, not only just the security posture, but also your cloud posture. So, so those are the three big tenets to what we're building at Equorex. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I agree with with what you're saying as far as uh, how do we match the agility of development to the with security, how do we layer on security to this push for agility? We're always pushing for a more agile and a more iterative approach for everything. Um, so can you clarify for me what immutable security is beyond a buzzword? Because I liked how you were trying to explain it beyond a buzzword. To me, the word immutable is kind of like become a buzzword bingo type thing, you know, drinking game where you're like, okay, if someone says immutable, then that means that it's, it's modern, it's good and all that kind of stuff. but Realistically, nothing never changes anymore. The only constant is change. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so, so what is immutable security from an actual strategic standpoint and then technological sure, standpoint? Sure, sure. So let's let's uh, let's start to understand what's really happening in the industry. Let's take a step back, right? So today, the developers are sort of building the cloud on the left, right? So today, they are putting uh, all their uh, uh, configurations, all their uh, components that they want to provision in the cloud, they are basically sort of programmatically defining or building it on the left. Uh, what Acutis is doing is assessing that infrastructure as code, which is which is defining your cloud, and and trying to understand what's the intent of the developer. You know, we try to uh, assess the code for compliance, for uh, governance, and also uh, from the security perspective, understanding what is the architecture risk to this particular code if it was uh, provisioned or it was used to spin the cloud. Step number one. 
Step number two is once it once that code gets provisioned to the cloud, then ensuring that at all times uh, we do the similar scan and look at the similar security posture for the the cloud, which is which was provisioned through this code. Up until this time, it's all good, right? What really happens and why where the immutability gets broken or where the trust gets broken is when the site reliability engineers uh, or the production ops people have an emergency situation and they think, hey, you know, I'm going to make a small change. I'm just going to, I, I see a vulnerability or I see a violation uh, or, or a misconfiguration in my environment. I really can't wait for my DevOps lifecycle to come and fix it for me. I need to address it today. It's a firewall. It's, it's break the, they, they break the glass. So they break the glass, they, they break the process, and thereby they break the trust with the original source that created that cloud or, or spun that cloud for them. So once that happens, uh, your, your security posture, so when, with that change, it may be a good change. So I'm not saying it's a good change or a bad change at this stage, right? We can talk about that as well. Let's say it's a good change in this case. Um, even then, your, your actual running cloud configuration has drifted from your original source code, right? Which was your source of throat. And when, if you want to have a true immutable infrastructure, then you need to have your security also move along with it, right? So what Acuris really does is, is, is help you true up your infrastructure as code uh, through an automatic fashion and saying something has changed in the cloud. We think it's a good change. We think your, your, it was required by the business, but, but hey developer, please go ahead and update your code so that now your code is in sync with, with the same posture as running cloud. Thereby we have reestablished the immutability or reestablished a trust that was created between the code and cloud. That, that's, that's what we're doing. Uh, when, we, when we talk about immutable security, I think we are saying that if your infrastructure is immutable, so should be your security, right? It should never, it should never leave the posture with the, with the changing environment in your cloud. Okay, so it sounds like you're saying don't, don't be willing to compromise speed for security. Well, we're not saying that. See, like, I think, I think if, you, if I say that, then the developers aren't going to like us, right? So you cannot... You Almost cannot, everybody always you, thinks of, of security as an antagonist, but... Yeah, so, so what I'm saying is go ahead and make those changes, right? So let's just, yeah. let's just say what we're saying, right? So, so assess your code, right? Do an automatic assessment of your code, uh, which will give you a security compliance much early on. But if once you're on the cloud, once you're running your workloads on the cloud, go ahead and make the changes that you want to make. Let your DevOps work at the speed of your business requirement. Let them um, have those emergency situations which they will always have, right? But get a mechanism in place where you get notified of that posture drift, where you get notified of the change that is happening in the cloud, and use that change to then true up your cloud, the true up your code. So we are talking about an automatic way of truing up your code. When I say code, is your infrastructure as code. Make sure that you true up your code. So the next time when you run your DevOps lifecycle using the same code, you're spinning a good cloud and not the cloud version minus one. So so I'm not saying slow down. I'm saying go ahead and do what you're doing, but make sure that you are constantly checking for your security posture in the background. And if it's a good change, true up your code. That's really fascinating because, I mean, uh, I used to work at Shaft. We worked in the infrastructure as code business, and we were always trying to get people to understand, no, you only make the changes in the code, and then you deploy it to your infrastructure. But as you mentioned, that can be a long process depending on the organization. So it sounds like you have some sort of mechanism or developing some sort of mechanism where if someone makes some manual change, uh, it it automatically reconciles the code uh, with that manual change. Is, Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Oh, that's but, that is real. That is really new. Actually, is, I've not heard of someone doing that before. Yep, that is that is that is new. That we have filed some patents on that, and 
And now take another example, right? Now let's say a change gets made by the attacker, right? Uh, when attacker has violated certain or compromised certain violations in their cloud, it makes its entry into the cloud, sits on it, 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 it persists for a period of time, uh, escalates its privileges at the right, right time. And then once it escalates its privileges, it types to make a lateral movement within your cloud and try to see what assets can it get, right? That time uh, a configuration within a cloud would change. When that change happens, and this time it is not a site reliability engineer or a production ops person who has changed that configuration, this time an attacker or a bot or something has changed that configuration. Once that happens, it will still trigger the same process within Accurix platform, and this time we will look for the change and compare it with your source of truth, which was your infrastructure as code, and say, hey, this drift is really not a desired drift. It actually is a risky drift, and we don't even know who made that change, and now we do not want that we do not want a change to go through because now that can basically have compromise on our data it could lead to a data exploration or data breach or anything like that so what we do in this case we actually root on on the code run the code back do a posture restoration right so it's like a, it's like a cloud rollback or a, or a config resiliency uh, or a self-healing infrastructure where we can tell you hey this this change is bad go back to the version previous where when they, you did not have this change and use that code to spin the new cloud so in a way, if, 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 if once again, if your uh, change is good in the cloud, then true up your code uh, to your point, Neil. And if the, if the change is bad, then true down on your, clo- down on your uh, code and run that again in your pipeline to spin the cloud min- version minus one. So like a cloud rollback, like a time machine on your laptop. So you know, it's interesting. I'm just sort of listening to how you're sort of describing this, you know, sort of, you know, code scanning of, of infrastructure's code. And it reminds me, I, um, I have a cybersecurity background and it sort of reminds me of, you know, I think where um, application code scanning was a few years ago where, you know, you're, you're trying to sort of connect, like let's say you're using a Veracode or something like that and you're trying to connect it to your source repository and, you know, every time a new, um, uh, you know, a, a new version is checked in, it's being, it's being scanned and you're getting the results and you can see sort of the diff between what, you know, what, what's been checked in and versus what was in there before and, and all that sort of thing. And it sounds like you're doing something similar, but on the infrastructure's code level, which is obviously, you know, it's a different, it's a totally different code base. Um, but I'm wondering if, if, if you see those parallels or, or if you see this as, as, as a completely different paradigm altogether. No, I see, I see a lot of parallels. So basically, uh, in fact, uh, that's interesting because we are talking to some, uh, uh, you know, static code analysis tools company, one, one name on the show, in a, in a deeper partnership uh, already because they do see it as a complementary uh, uh, solution because uh, infrastructure as code is a completely different world, right? It is a declarative language. Uh, it is not your semantic code. It's not, you know, we're not looking for any uh, semantic, semantic analysis on your cross-site scripting or your SQL injections, you know, or your input sanitization. We're not looking for those. We're looking for declarative uh, and, and, and understanding what's your intent of using that code for, the, for deploying the cloud. And when I look at the infrastructure as code, it's really not a code scanning. It is actually a cloud security because, you know, everything that you're defining in the code is sort of building the, the cloud. So, so if you don't have the context of cloud architecture and you say, hey, you know, I'm going to do static scanning of my code, then you will not be able to get the context that I'm talking about because it's, a, it's an architecture blueprint, right? You know, your code is defining your architecture blueprint. So at that point, you must do an architecture risk assessment before you even say, what's, what's the dependency of one resource with another? What is, uh, how is my network table looks like? Who can communicate with whom? Uh, is it allowed communication? So, you know, all those, all those context needs to be put in before you start saying that it is a good code or a bad code, right? It's, it's very different from your application code. 
Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. I noticed that uh, when I was looking at your website, uh, that you know, one of the things you scan is Kubernetes YAML files. And it's impossible to know if the YAML file is good. But I mean, for Kubernetes, there's often so much context uh, that needs to be involved in with the various microservices and architectures that are being used. So that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So basically, uh, again, you know, what we're doing in the Kubernetes world, everything is uh, defined declaratively through YAML files, or some people use HEMCharts, right? Uh, you may have heard of HEMCharts as well. So uh, what we're really doing at that time is understanding what is the configuration of your Kubernetes cluster, you know, how you define your master nodes and your slave nodes and your, uh, how many containers, how many uh, uh, applications would be running on that particular cluster and what's their ingress, ingress controller, uh, who's at, who has the right admissions, who does not have, what are the privileges for each, each such application. So everything gets defined through this, uh, through this YAML uh, files. And what we are doing at, at, on that layer is writing policies and understanding uh, what is the behavior that you're expecting for your Kubernetes clusters to have, and then map it back to the, the best practices, and then basically uh, looking for the actual runtime behavior of your Kubernetes cluster in runtime and seeing if there's any change in the behavior uh, or any, any change in the configuration that you had expected it to behave with. So once again, um, but, uh, I, I want to go back to what Jeffrey was talking about on the static code analysis on the, on the code. Um, I, I think I think I want to complete that thought that yes, there's a lot of tabulance, Jeffrey. Uh, it is it is a static code scanning of an infrastructure as code, which is same as what most people would do on their application code. The difference being you are assessing the code for the architecture risk. Um, second is um, and and to me that's not enough because you almost have to go to runtime to see what's really happening in runtime. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard the concept of digital twin where you have a blueprint, your, your intent, and your actual, you know, as is. Can you, can you say that, what it's called one more time? A digital twin. Digital twin. Yeah. I have not heard of that. So digital twin was a concept that G uh, brought out, right, when they would basically build large power plants or, or, the, uh, or the starships or, you know, big, big airplanes and all. What they would do is they would create a blueprint of, of your uh, design um, and, and, you know, of, of, of your big oil, oil and gas plant or your power plant, whatever that is, or nuclear plant, and then they will actually have the actual plan. So the digital twin is nothing but a model of your production environment. You bring it into design and basically do all your risk assessment on the design so that you are not shutting down the critical services on your runtime. So I tend, I tend to compare the, the whole cloud deployment, which is evolving, which is changing, which is transient, to bring that blueprint onto the code and saying your code is a blueprint, get as much visibility into the code because then you can basically control, uh, you know, and, and get a better cloud security posture. You know, and I'm curious, you know, just sort of going down this path a little bit further, when you say um, assessing, you know, the infrastructure's code, what are you assessing it against? Like what's the baseline, you know, that you're using um, to sort of decide, you know, what's, what's good, what's bad, what's medium, you know, low severity, that sort of thing. 
So there are certain uh, benchmarks. Uh, so so I will start with saying there are certain benchmarks, and then I'll come to what Equity's best practices are. Uh, obviously, we have our own security research team, which gives, constantly keeps writing policies. Uh, so there are certain benchmarks. There's a benchmark by NIST, uh, CS benchmarks. Uh, the, uh, AWS has published best practices for cloud configurations. So has Azure. Then there is a framework called Well Architecture. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Well Architecture framework. Uh, again, uh, all the large cloud providers are working together to create that framework. And then you, of course, have your regulatory compliances such as SOC 2, HIPAA, uh, you know, which are you know sort of checkmarks, checkmark check kind of a thing, you know, saying tick mark, and you know you are HIPAA compliant or SOC 2, which I really don't give too much value to, but but obviously a lot of compliance folks do, right? So, um, so when we look at so those benchmarks, uh, industry benchmarks and the best practices, and then we combine that with the research that we have done. And uh, in fact, we are actually planning to contribute some of our findings uh, on the CS uh, framework um, for, for, the, for the community because we have added, I think, around 30 more policies onto the standards that they have defined. So that's what we look for uh, as a step number one that uh, are you violating or are you violating any best practices that AWS or Azure or GCP want you to, to follow? But more importantly, what we do, and then of course, like I said, we've written our own policies, but more importantly, what we do is we follow the relationships between this, 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 this policies or, or this architecture and saying, do you actually have a dependency or a config blast uh, between one violations versus another? So that's taking the violations to the next level by uh, and we take four. We take four context. We take the thread context. We take the uh, network context, uh, access context, and identity context. I, like and a privilege, right? So, so basically, who has access to what? Uh, who can? Uh, uh, what, what? What is your least? Uh, what? What is your amount of least privileges? Uh, what is uh, the network context? Like you know, once someone gets hands to something, how far can they go into it? And the third one, fourth one, of course, is the is the is a threat vector. Like you know, what is it? What is the threat vector trying to do? So once we combine those four contexts, and again, some of this is on our blogs and our website as well, um, we then we create what we call as the, the the threat map or the or the actual architecture risk that you have. So which is different from a policy violation on your standards, your best practices, and that's what we look for. Cool. Well, if, oh, sorry, Jeff. Did you want to say something? No, I was just going to say no. That that makes a lot of sense, and 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 to me, especially when you know you're sort of you're you know almost using the CIS, for instance, as as sort of a uh, it sounds like it's almost like a starting point. But then, um, you know, the fact that you're then doing a lot of threat modeling, I think that's such an important thing in in the cloud space where it's you know bespoke attacks are are you know there's just so many new and, and interesting facets of um, you know the attack surface and, and new attack vectors that are coming out that that. Um, I, it sounds like an interesting approach that you're taking. Yes, uh, I think we are. If you, if, you, if you look for bridge path prediction, again, we have written some patent papers on that. Uh, so we are basically saying that uh, your cloud, before you even deploy your cloud, like I think uh, Neil was talking about her work at Chef uh, as infrastructure as code, can you determine that you even have a bridge path in your environment, right? And what I mean by bridge path, is not saying a simple violation to a particular CIS policy. We are saying, uh, is your uh, network open? If your network is open, is your S3 bucket or your storage buckets, are they encrypted or not encrypted? Uh, is there an IAM role that connects, is there an identity and access management role that connects the two? 
is there is there a network path between the two so so once you draw all those relations then you say that okay now if someone really got an access or someone could compromise your role and get an get an access to your cloud environment then this is what he can get to right it and sounds like that, mm-hmm. it sounds like that could have prevented the capital one attack uh, absolutely. last year absolutely and in fact in fact we we basically out of the gate uh, so we have some 27 such attacks that we are following. So uh, SSRF, uh, the server-side uh, request 4G, which was Capital One attack. Uh, Vector was is, is definitely one of the breach paths that we show in our demos uh, to talk to our uh, financial, large financial seg- uh, customer that you're working with. Uh, because uh, I, I, I think everyone everyone is scared about that. And right? I mean, talks about it. And so, so absolutely, you're right. So so I think I think what I would like to add is, that when you're looking at this, this uh, violations, you know, you see thousands of those, right? You mean every time you, you run a scan, you know, um, we are also a security solution. So we like to take pride in saying, hey, you know, we scan your environment, you're showing thousand high violations so that we can prove the value of our product. My view, that is not important, right? What is important is that you may have a violation, but are you exposed? And, and if you're exposed, what's your exposure gauge? Like how do, how do you know that what's my risk to, to this, right? And if you can measure that risk, and the exposure, then the developers can uh, prioritize the remediation. To me, that is more important than saying, uh, how do I fix, where do I start you know, fixing thousand violations that I see on the cloud? And that's why, that's why nobody solves it. And they just leave it open <laughs> until something like Capital One happens. Right? I know when you, uh, you, you hit someone with a, a spreadsheet of a thousand uh, violations, the, the first thing that happens is it feels completely overwhelming. You know, how am I ever going to get to all of these? Yeah, and I, and I think it's overwhelming and also, People think that it's a noise, and uh, you know, I'm, I have a noise fatigue, or just one one another tool giving me like thousand violations. Okay, I, uh, you know, my current existing tools probably already tell me. So what's the new thing that you're telling me, right? So so you're right. I mean, I think it's the fatigue, uh, the vendor fatigue, the tool, the, the alert fatigue, <laughs> uh, and people say, okay, you know, I really don't want a new solution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's a challenge in, in the security. Um, community today to sort of say not just here's a whole you know enumeration or litany of of, of uh, issues that we found but here's why you got to be concerned about them um you know i think it's it's you know just a quick anecdote you know me making fun of sort of my own community but but uh you know we used to talk about like cross-site scripting uh, vulnerabilities all the time and, and the way that we would prove them is we'd show like that you know the javascript alert box pops up right and it shows xxs or something like that and, you know, I think the average developer, we didn't understand at the time, but, you know, looking back on it, the average developer looked at it and said, who cares? You opened up an alert box. Who cares? Right? And that's the problem. That, that was a huge disconnect. So I think to your point, it's so important for us to sort of say, hey, this is important and this is why it's important. Yeah. And, you know, when you, con- and again, going back to Capital One example, when you contextualize it and say, hey, your breach path is similar to what we saw at Capital One or Verizon or one of those high profile breaches. Uh, what are you going to do about it? I think then you get the attention of the C-level folks and saying, hey, we got to get this fixed. You know, why do we even have this, this exposure in, the, in that environment? And uh, to me, that, gets, that catches the attention. But more importantly, uh, those are the real risks that are sitting in your cloud environment today. Right? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people complain and say, oh, we have sec- security groups open to internet, or pu- publicly exposed uh, storage buckets or you know, things like those. I, I mean, you are right, but but maybe they are sitting behind a, a, a private subnet. So then, you know, uh, it's not really exposed in, in a way, right? So, so, so those are things that I think uh, when you put the context uh, to it, then I think, um, and I think you should read, you know, when in your free time, we have enough material that we have thrown out on breach path prediction and even 
on the on the on the threat modeling on infrastructure where we're talking about the threat traceability, uh, plotting the threat right on the network map and saying this is this is how far you are from an internet gateway or, or your ingress port and 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 now you can calculate your exposure risk and you can even work on applying principles of these privileges. So I understand uh, Acurix has also put out a the inaugural state of DevSecOps research yes. report. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, yeah, so we did actually our own research. Uh, um, again, uh, the, the data set was fairly large, uh, talking to enterprises, talking to a lot of developers. We actually had our own freemium version that we had launched before we launched the report. So we created some data from that uh, freemium tool. Um, we divided our report into five major sections. Uh, you know, I'll probably talk about three here, uh, which are which is of significance. The first one was that only f- uh, the, the solutions in the production or the, the, the cloud security posture management solutions that existed for the last three, four years, they do show the violations, but only 4% of those violations actually are remediated um, in runtime. And um, which means 96% remain unresolved. It's going back to the thousand violations that you see, you know, people are not resolving all thousand or even 500, they're just resolving maybe 30 or 40 of those, right? So, so, so that was a, a finding number one that, that why do you even risk, why do you even build your cloud and, 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 and run with that risk? But, but back to your point, Neil, if you did all the assessment and security assessment early on in your DevOps lifecycle and, and, and did all those compliance checks and uh, governance checks, uh, like a policy guardrail, uh, before you even went through your pipeline, then you probably should see only 20, 30 at best violations which you didn't fix in, the, in, in, your, in your developer pipeline. And then you have very little things to fix in the runtime. So I think the first finding from our research was that only 4% of uh, actual issues that that some of these tools bring out get fixed in runtime. The second one uh, was that uh, 27, uh, more than 20, 27% of the people have started using infrastructure as code, but most of them are not really taking advantage of uh, applying any security controls or guardrails early on in the process. They're using it for the DevOps speed and agility. I think this is back to Tyler's point about speed and agility of DevOps. So they, 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 they're using those tools for standardization, they're using it for agility, they're using it to create efficiencies and reusability, but, but not for governance, right? So, so again, that was a, uh, uh, a finding that we had. And the last one, which was actually probably the biggest one, was 90% of the actual code, infrastructure code, uh, and the cloud drifted from one another. So, so if someone wrote a piece of code to deploy the cloud today, uh, five days later, that cloud would have changed with certain configurations, and there was a drift there was at least 90% drifts that we saw, which means um, that uh, even though you had a good intent to use infrastructure as code to deploy your cloud in the first place, but then you keep making changes directly in the cloud um, and and that starts creating a drift between your, your postures. Excellent. How looking forward to, to reading that report. That sounds uh, fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's actually a very interesting report. We had actually pretty good success with that report. A lot of analysts picked that up. Uh, in fact, it got recoded. People are recoding some of those findings in their own reports. Uh, we are actually coming up uh, with another report <laughs> this fall where we are drilling deeper into each of these topics and saying what's really constituting, what are the top three reasons uh, that's constituting the, the drips? What is the, what's really happening in the cloud environment? Uh, what are the top five violations or the breach path, not just the CIS violations or things like those, but is it a capital one kind of a breach path that we're seeing? Is it a different one? What are typical 
top five breach paths that we're seeing uh, in the cloud environments today. So we are coming with a little bit of deeper second level of details report. Uh, I think that report should really uh, hit you know a lot of folks, and they can probably do their own checking without even using a Qtix platform. Uh, so I, I, I hope that report will be really useful for the community. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community, and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET, and there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T, adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Excellent. So if people want to get started to use the Acurus um, uh, platform or uh, tools, it looks like uh, you have at least one, one tool that's, that's open for everyone that's TerraScan. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, TerraScan and, and what they can do for free to just to get started with uh, some of those scans and policy enforcement that uh, you've been outlining today for us. Well, that was going to be my pick of the day. You picked, you, you talked about my pick. <laughs> well, we're going to transit. Yeah. So maybe a, a spoiler alert, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let me talk about, uh, I'll come back to TerraScan, um, but uh, let me talk about uh, how people can get started. So we actually have Excellent. a full, full, full freemium version of a product. So that's not open source, by the way, right? So we have a full freemium version of a product. They can go to our website, uh, Um uh, start free trial. Actually, sorry, not free trial. Start a free version or, or, or sign up now. And it's a, it's a fully functional, 100% uh, uh, almost 300 plus CIS benchmark policies. I think we, we are really offering a lot of policies for free. I think I've seen the closest tools offer like 30 or 40 such policies. So, so entire CS benchmark policies for your Terraform, uh, version 11 is version 12, so both versions, your AWS, GCP, and Azure, all three clouds, and, um, and uh, also your integration with Slack and Jira for your notifications. So all that bundle is, 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 is actually free of cost. People can use it for unlimited use, no, no restrictions uh, whatsoever. So that is our uh, free version. So they can truly get started. The developers can truly get started assessing their risk much early on for the compliance against CS benchmark. Now, what they will not get from free version, of course, is, is the correlations, the, the breach paths, exposure uh, risks, uh, network context, uh, the things that we talked about. They will not get the drift because uh, you need to then do cloud scanning and understand the cloud posture at that, that point in time. Uh, and they won't get the time series data. So when I talk about cloud versioning, we create time series data for the cloud versions uh, so that we can go back and see who made change to what cloud configuration when, uh, and keep, we can keep going back to like three months, one year. So all those versioning is not there uh, in, in the free version, but uh, they can get started with, with, with a decent amount of functionality with free version. Awesome, thank you. So something I'm curious about is a little bit off topic, uh, but Accurix, you mentioned, is your fifth startup. And it sounds like your other ones have been very successful. They got acquired. Uh, what do you look for in a new technology or new startup that tells you there's a business around this? Actually, that's a good question. Yeah. So I think, you know, I do get this asked. Right? I mean, I've spoken at some, um, some universities on entrepreneurships and 
I don't know whether I still have that crystal ball. <laughs> I don't have that answer. Uh, I think it's a gut feel, I would say. Like, if I knew that science behind it, uh, I mean, um, I mean, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a combination of looking at the trends. So I'll give you an example. Um, my, my second startup was actually during the, down, during the subprime crisis in 2008, right? And I chose, uh, I, I had a pretty good idea on, on, um, on, I had a completely different idea, but then I dropped that idea in favor of doing something in the healthcare industry because I knew that uh, our President Obama at that time was coming up with a big stimulus package for the physician offices. And I knew once they, they get automated, then we will need a healthcare information exchange to transfer data from uh, the physician offices to the hospital and trying to create a health in information exchange or you know, something like that. So I, I picked up that idea and you know, within three years that got acquired by private equity folks, because obviously we scaled fairly quick, right? Because I, I used to joke that president is my chief marketing officer. I mean, he's already selling, he's already marketing what I should be developing. Now what I, all I need to do is get a right solution for the right audience and sell it, right? Um, and because I had that good experience, my second startup happened to be also in healthcare. Um, and that time I was picking up the new regulation where people were moving from ICD-9, I don't know how much you guys are aware of, the disease code from 9 to 10. Uh, and it was just not a digit, digit addition. It's not like a Y2K problem or a, or a you know, whether it's a four-digit year or two-digit year. It was, a, you know, it was a little bit of a bigger problem because in ICD-10, you tend to define a little bit more context to the disease. So I picked up that as a trend, as a compliance trend, and said, okay, if people would need to move from ICD-9 to 10, they would need a solution, they would need a financial risk calculator, uh, some machine learning, <clears throat> and built, I built a company called JVN around it, uh, very successful, and just got sold to JMI equity, um, and, uh, and, and a great idea. The, the layer inside was born because I started seeing the trend, a Docker uh, became a unicorn in 2014, uh, 2015, and, and I knew that Docker would become uh, the gold standard, it will probably challenge VM, you know, virtual machines and, you know, will become a new DevOps, uh, you know, people would start containerizing their applications. So I saw the trend and I thought that when you look at container or containerized applications, you will need a different way of securing those workloads than you would use traditional or, or a 1.0 solutions, right, or, or, or a legacy solutions. So again, a, a right, right hypothesis, I would say right timing. Uh, Docker did well and, and so did Kubernetes and so did Layer Insight. We sold that to Collis. So I think, I think it's just following the trend. If I now look at Acurix, according to Gartner, the number one trend for 2020 and 2021 is infrastructure automation, right? Repeatedly, they've talked about infrastructure automations, like Tyler was talking about speed of DevOps. Um, so, um, I mean, if, if that's what people are going to do, then they, we don't want people to leave security blind spots or, or any human, I call them as human vulnerabilities, which can actually be fixed if you just follow the best practices. So I think with that simple concept is what I'm building at Quirix. And I think, like I said, you know, even in this um, uh, uh, lockdown period, in this shelter in place, when people are cutting their budgets, uh, you know, in, the, in just last month, we just came out of stealth two months back and I already have paying customers. And I think we're probably signing more than a customer a week, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's, a, a startup is really growing really rapidly. Thank you very much. And thank you for working on that health information transfer system. I worked in medical records 10, 15 years ago, and we had digital records, but I remember we would print them out yes, and then yes. fax them to, to the other hospitals or other places that needed them. So thank you for your work on that. That sounds so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we try to make some small contribution to the society, right? And, and, and I hope we can leave behind a footprint. That's more 
uh, more satisfying than getting five successful startups, I would say. Great. Well, it sounds like we might have conversation around one of the picks. Uh, uh, sure. So Sachin, why don't you start us off with your picks for this week? Yeah, you know, actually, I think Tyler sort of wanted to lead in that direction. Uh, so I do want to pick up uh, TerraScan. And again, I'm not picking this because it's a curious project. So uh, I, I think I want to tell you a little history about this, why I picked this. Um, so this project was started by a gentleman. His name is Cesar, uh, Cesar Rodriguez. Uh, he was a principal security architect at um, uh, T. Rowe Price, which is a large financial institution. And he had a maternity leave, he had a paternity leave, um, uh, uh, I think it was last year, early last year. And during his, uh, you know, one of the nights when he was just, you know, his, his poly kid was crying or something, he, he thought, you know, while he's, he's awake, he, he wants to write some code. And he started writing the code about, about this, this scanning Terraform. It was a simple project at that time, just scan Terraform files, pick up the best practices, I think he had like 30, 40 policies in that and started open, open sourcing it for the community. It became hugely successful. And uh, I think right now has, you know, more than 10 folks, uh, 40 contributors, 1,000 downloads, you know, things like those, right? So uh, I, 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 what, I'd, what I'd really like to share here is, is a passion of an individual, right? I mean, uh, you know, you don't really have to create a project just because you must create, right? I mean, sometimes people are passionate about doing things and, and giving for the larger community. And he did that in, during his free time, during his paternity leave, um, with his, you know, when his mind was very clear. And he, he, I don't know how long he took that, to write that code, but, uh, but uh, I, I think his work, I followed his work for the last uh, 18 months and I've been tracking him. I've been, I've been very uh, you know, supportive of, of course of the, of the whole, whole open source effort that he was undertaking. But more importantly, I was, was very intrigued by his passion, by his uh, commitment to the, to the community, to the developer community, and, and also just solving a, a problem. So that's why I picked that up uh, because to, today is when we announced, uh, and I, I'm sure you guys are following some, some LinkedIn posts and things like that, that Acurix is committing to now support this project in full. Caesar joined us full-time as head of developer relations. So I think it's a perfect timing for me to be here today and talk about the great work that was done by a great person and we're going to carry it forward. That sounds fantastic. Uh, go ahead, yeah, Tyler. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that um, security... I think in a nutshell, it's about trust. And uh, when the trust is broken, we have insecure systems. And when we, um, the human level and the technological level. And so I admire um, your integrity to, to want to uh, enable and automate a lot of this trust so that uh, we have a good baseline. You know, we get past just the compliancy thing, but just like how we should treat each other, you know? So I appreciate that. So Tyler, what would be your pick for the day or the week? Um, well, there is a conference going on, virtual conference for Cloud Foundry. And so to me, Cloud Foundry is near and dear to my heart because I've worked on it for the last four or five years. And, um, and I could see from the Accurix uh, website that uh, you guys don't have a scanner for Cloud Foundry yet. So <laughs> I would say, um, I'm going to say, layer on the, the Kubernetes one. There's, at the conference this week, we're talking a lot about... Uh, not running Cloud Foundry, which is essentially software as a service masquerading as a platform, otherwise known mm -hmm. as platform as a service. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Interestingly, you brought Lord Chandra because we work. I work very closely with GE uh, and a few other folks, and and you know we always talk about you know what can we support on Lord Chandra. So you know, <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, they still yeah. exist, by the way. <laughs> yes, and and so it's the, their their main topic right now is the developer experience, and so I think what's um, valuable about uh, Accurix is. Uh, that you can make the developer experience of security better, right? And so Cloud Foundry tried to make it better for uh, people to run on, uh, to, for the develop, uh, developer to push their app and, and those type of things. And I know that there's a, uh, a lot of people in Cloud Foundry working on the security part for it, but I think that uh, if they had your team as an ally to help to, to help automate that, it would it would be great. And so, one of the things that I want to pick or, or highlight this week is that people are running Cloud Foundry now as software on Kubernetes. So they're just saying, okay, well, we got a lot of really good things here. Maybe you don't necessarily need our the way we run things, the way we containerize things, and do that. We'll we'll containerize them in Cloud Foundry. But the core part of Cloud Foundry is you know the authentication model and being able to integrate with that. Um, the API that allows you to to do a lot of orchestration and doing routes and all these different things and and uh, reuse those core we'll use those core parts and then um, let the evolution of uh, Kubernetes and and all of its stuff can so they're 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 essentially starting to merge and so that would be my technical pick um, this week and uh, my personal pick is that uh, I am a, a Minecraft geek. And uh, this week, a, a very large update that's been in the works for months has come out. And so I've been playing that with my son. Oh, and, nice. uh, it's, uh, it's the Nether update. And so I give a plug for Minecraft and going in and downloading the new Nether update. So that's, and that's what my computer background is. Uh, unfortunately, no one will really see that. Maybe I'll post the, a link to the background in, in our show notes. <laughs> but, uh, but we are mostly an audio-only screencast. So. Those are my picks this week. Yeah. No? Awesome. Sure. I've got two. Uh, one is, I know I've picked it before, folding at home. And I was picking it mainly for something you'd like to do you know, on your computer that can support medical research and simulations and such using it. And I still pick it for that. But I've been diving a bit into the way it works. And it's really fascinating. Uh, so I definitely recommend, you know, look at the way it works, look at the way it's making, you know, the biggest supercomputer we've ever seen using spare computing cycles. It's, it's fascinating and I think something to model things out after in the future. Uh, second one. So prior to pandemic, uh, well, for a while, I've loved true crime podcasts, uh, but the, the unlistened to episodes on all the ones I normally are just getting longer and longer and longer because I can't really uh, deal with something that disturbs me right now. Um, however, one I do want, I have been continuing to listen to and love is the show Someone Knows Something uh, from CBC Radio. Mm -hmm. And what it does is, like many podcasts, it picks up cold cases, mm -hmm. uh, cases that have not been solved, and the reporter does kind of his own investigation. The thing I like about it is often the investigation is driven by the families okay. of the victims. It, 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 it just it feels... A little more respectful that way it's not it doesn't feel as sensational mm -hmm. and there's two seasons that I know of a season three and the last one season six where there is 
a major thing that they uncover as a result of the podcast. So it's not just exploring the event that happened. There are new developments uh, on it. And the nice thing is when there are new developments, they continue to update it even after the uh, podcast season has ended. So highly recommend that that one if you need something absorbing uh, to listen to uh, while you're, I I usually listen to it while doing the dishes. (laughs) So uh, that's it for my picks. Uh, Over to Jeff. All right. I think so. Um, so I usually pick books and I love books. So I'm going to pick another one uh, this week. This is completely non-technical. Uh, one of the things that I've had to sort of learn over the last couple of years um, is communications through marketing, right? It's, it's just one of the things that you have to do if, you know, if you run a business and you need to get clients and, and all that. So it's just, it's just, it's a thing you have to do. And from a marketer from all the way back in the 60s, um, Eugene M. Schwartz, he wrote a book called The Brilliance Breakthrough. I'm actually just looking at it right now. Um, How to Talk and Write So That People Will Never Forget You. Mm-hmm. And it is such an amazing book. It was probably written about 20, 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago now. Um, and it's all about basically how to communicate. And you know, his application of that was for marketing, right, to, to be able to send out a message that's very clear and understandable so that your marketing actually, you know, is, is, uh, works, but it can work for, I mean, it's the ideas behind it are really just about communication and how to communicate clearly. And I mean, it's like, it's basically a textbook, like at the end of each chapter, he gives you like exercises to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he, you know, if you think back at, you know, grade school or high school or whatever it was, when we learned how to, um, diagram sentences and learn things like, you know, um, subject and predicate and all that kind of stuff, which is just so useless. Like it doesn't teach you how to speak or how to, you know, formulate a sentence that that, that actually is, um, you know, understandable. Um, what Gene Schwartz does is really explains it in a very, in, in a much simpler way, like how to construct sentences, how to string them together and how to get your message across. So I highly highly recommend the book. I think it's great. It's easy to understand. And it's just like, at some point, like, wow, this is so simple. Why didn't, you know, why didn't anybody else, you know, sort of pick up on this? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a great, you know, I mean, it's one of those things oh, that I think we all can get better at. Yeah. I, I, Sorry. I took a note of that book and I think that that definitely makes sense. You know, I haven't read it, so it'll be a good pick. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's available through, um, Titans Marketing. Uh, you might be able to get like a used book of it, like on Amazon or eBay or whatever, but Titans Marketing actually sells the book. It's, it is not, I'm going to tell you, it's not a cheap book. I think it's, it goes for like $175 oh, or something wow. like that. But it is, uh, I, I, I think it's amazing. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sachin, for coming on the podcast. Learned a lot and looking forward to seeing uh, what Accurix does going forward. Thank you, Neil and uh, Tyler and Jeff. You guys all have a wonderful evening and rest of the week. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Please take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.